0: G'day folks and welcome to "Playing Crazy Down Under, the podcast as always looking at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. Steve Fisher here with you once again and we're up to episode number 10 and with me as always is my trusty co-host
1: Grant McCarran. How are you Grant? Hey, not too bad mate. I'm feeling pretty dang good actually because we made it to double figures. Woohoo! They said we'd never make it and we did. Not only did we get past the first couple, we've ploughed our way up to episode 10. Yay!
0: Yep, a big, it's a... Well, it may be a little milestone, but it's it's a big milestone for us. We weren't sure um, how many episodes we'd get off the ground when we launched this little project, but, um, yeah, we're, we're uh, pushing on with it. So we're very happy with the way it's going so far. Now, Grant, if I was to play you this sound clip.
2: So if I were to set myself goal, which I generally do because I'm a goal-oriented person, uh, I, I can, not unrealistically, say I would like to be uh, in the top three, not next year, the year after.
1: Who would you reckon that is, mate? Ooh, um, you know, it's right on the tip of my tongue. I know the I know that uh, uh,
0: Matt Hall. Matt Hall. Oh, don't you mean Matt Hall?
3: We're not worthy. We're not worthy.
0: <laughs> and I'll tell you what, mate, Indeed. uh talk about wanting or having some ambitions to come third next year. He's already just achieved that this year.
2: Congratulations, Mark, The first rookie this season to get on the podium. Yeah, outstanding. Um, oh, I knew I could do it if I just stayed consistent, and I just had to stay consistent. And um, I flew the the game plan went absolutely perfectly. We we decided on the game plan, we flew it, and um, and it worked. So uh, yeah, really uh, really happy.
0: And he's not the only one that's happy. Uh, many many of his fans, such as our good selves, and uh, many others who are following him here in this country, are also just thrilled to see him up there on the podium so early in his uh, rookie season.
1: totally legendary mate Uh, very very happy to see him finally get what he deserves that third place is just awesome Mr Matt on the podium and uh, all going well able to keep his uh, third
0: place right to the end of the year and of course you may be wondering why we're constantly mentioning Matt Hall so often Um, well it just happens that we've just been speaking to him again
1: yay lucky us
0: yeah, so of course, we were really thrilled the last time when uh, Matt was uh, so generous with his time and gave us such a, uh, a long interview the last time. Well, um, Grant and I have just been talking to him again and um, it's it's another really, really fascinating interview and uh, so we'll uh, jump straight into that now.
1: Well, hey, this is Grant here and uh, we've got Matt Hall on the line once again. Uh, Matt, thanks very much for joining us once again. No, it's a pleasure. Right. Uh, well, first up, major congratulations on your podium placing at Porto. Uh, third place, absolutely awesome. It looked like it was a beautiful flight.
2: Yeah, I, I, was, I was really happy. Um, it was it was a hard week with no training, um, and I knew that my plane wasn't the fastest on the track. So uh, it was it was a bit of a game plan that I decided to back off slightly and fly a clean race rather than uh, rather than trying to see how fast I could go. And try and see how fast you can go. You'll often make a mistake. So the the game plan worked out.
1: Yeah. So you you backed it off a bit and just went for that super fluid cool mode rather than the uh, push it push it push it go.
2: Exactly. And I knew with that track that um, you know there was the that track was open for a lot of people to to actually uh, do really well in uh, because it was just because it was a drag race and there wasn't as much pilot skill in that one. Um, so I was just I was thinking about what was going to happen and. Just because I knew that there was a lot of people that thought they could probably do better than their normal race, I sort of figured they were going to have a little bit of mental choking and uh, and, and just try too hard, and that's exactly what happened. We had uh, we had over Gs. There were so many people that were rolling inside the gates, which is not a normal thing. Um, whereas I did completely opposite. I uh, I flew a low G race and um, and delayed my rolls significantly more than I normally do, um, just to ensure that there was a definite uh, margin there. Uh, I cost myself a bit of time but I knew that um, you know, I, I knew that it wasn't about how fast I could fly it was about how clean I could fly I yeah.
3: think
0: it's like you said to us last time uh, really the key to a lot of this sort of stuff appears to be just consistency like that uh, rather than than trying to you know really push it to the limits all the time
2: exactly yeah and uh, and you look at you know some of the guys some of the guys can win races in fact I think I was adding it up just the other day that there's something like seven or eight different pilots out of 15 now that have been on the podium this year. So a huge amount. But when you look at the uh, the championship points, and I'm in third now, it it really does come down to just just con- every every race you just you know d- flying cleanly up near the top, and that's uh, that's how you get consistent. And and really that that's uh, that's leading me into next year already. That uh, you know if I know that if I can fly, uh, develop a really clean flying style that's I have confidence that I can fly cleanly, and I get a plane. It's you know, my new plane is uh, is competitive to win. So at the moment, this this plane is, is probably not competitive to win. Um, but if I can combine the yeah, clean flying and a and a, you know a, a top line aircraft, um, you know th- there's no reason not to be uh, not to be on the podium uh, quite regularly.
0: Has oh. uh, the likes of uh, Paul Bonhomme, obviously he won that round and um, you know did a, a his usual outstanding job as he uh, he must be uh, really watching his tail now watching um, you know the rookies such as yourself uh, coming right up behind there.
2: Yeah, well, I think um, I think someone like him doesn't actually doesn't actually look too much into that side of things. Uh, um, yeah you know, I haven't really talked to him about it, but just just by looking at the way he presents himself and the way he flies, I'm reasonably certain that he has um, an ability to, to ignore external forces. Um, so he doesn't he doesn't look too much about who's around him, who's behind him, who's catching up to him. He's able to just you know concentrate on his own performance, which is what it's all about. Um, and that's why, and that's why I think he has very smooth flying, even in high pressure situations, because he's not feeling the pressure, because he's purely just concentrating on himself. Um, I do think that someone like uh, Hannes or um, or uh, you know uh, uh, Kirby or or um, Michael Goulian, um they will, they probably look a bit more around who's who's the challenge that's uh, that's arising. So um, there's a, there's quite a few different mentalities in the race, that's for sure.
1: Interesting. Okay. Uh, last time we chatted, we uh, we spoke a little about the dreaded pylon hits, and lo and behold, there was another one, and this time during qualifying. But you you held it all together and kept going. Um, how was that one?
2: Um, it was. I, I said. I think I said at the last one that I really wanted to uh, not have any more pylon hits this year. So uh, <laughs>
3: yep. I, I was
2: disappointed that I actually uh, hit the pylons, but I, I wasn't devastated. Um, the it, it, uh, every pylon hit I have, I, I really want to understand why it happened so that I know that um, you know, there's a reason for it and a, you know, I can then not be worried that I'll accidentally hit another pylon. And, um, and the, re- the reason um, for the pylon, I actually hit two pylons um, at, at Porto and it came down to the fact that I had to really elevate my, my aggression the first time I went into the track because normally I'll go into the track in training and I'll do my first couple of runs and not even finish the total track. I'll, I'll have a game plan where I, on the first training flight, I'll go in and I'll just, I'll just run one section of the track over and over and over again. And I'll even probably sit above the pylons, you know, just above the pylons. So I'm not feeling the pressure of, of, of being in the gate. I'm actually not worrying about the gate at all. But I'm just looking at lines and feeling the G and just getting used to where a good race line would be. Um, and that's why often after uh, training one or tra- training two, even, I- I'm, I'm actually being uh, listed in the results as disqualified because I, I'm not actually flying a whole racetrack. Um, when I went to Porto, it was obviously very, um, very foggy for, the first, for all of the training. So <laughs> yeah. The first time I saw the track was actually on the Saturday, on the qualifying day. So I'd, I'd not even flown the track at all. So um, I decided that my first training, I was going to go quite aggressive. Um, and risk pylon hits, in just for the purpose of finding very find, going straight to the tightest line. I thought I could get, um, you know, on my, my theoretical tightest line. Um, so in the first, the first training run, I ended up taking out a, a chicane pylon just by seeing, you know, how straight line I could fly the chicane because that was the first <laughs> chicane um, since the third race. So um, so, I, I went through the track once. Came, oh, in fact, it was the first run. I, I just clipped a, a chicane with my wing kit. It was a pretty, pretty tight line. <laughs> but um, but, but I, wasn't, I wasn't disappointed. I wasn't devastated I hit that pylon because I knew I was going as, as tight as I could to, uh, to see what it was like. The, the pylon I hit in uh, the, the very next sliding, my first qualifying run, was a similar situation where I was still trying... I, I decided on the line I was going to fly... And I flew a very, very aggressive and fast line. I actually, I logged a very fast time apart from the pylon hit, which was uh, was only, I think it was less than half a second behind Bonham. So it was a very fast time, yep. but had too much risk in it. So, um, which I knew was going, you know, it was the potential. So then I, I backed off a little bit for the next qualifying run and, you know, went about 0.2 or 0.3 of a second slower. And then for race day, then I went, like, okay, I know, I know for all those flights I did on the Saturday, I was I was right up against my limit of making a mistake. So that's where I decided that, you know, I'm not going to win and I'm not going to beat Paul. Let's just back off a little bit and fly cleanly and safely and let everyone else um, make the errors. So that's kinda of how those pylon hits happened. As it wasn't my objective to hit them, but just through the situation I found myself in with limited training I decided that I was I needed to accept more risk than I normally would in the training flights and, and the qualifying. To, uh, to discover those lines very quickly.
0: Still in all, does it take a lot of, um, like, is there a natural urge, I guess, to you know, to really hit that as hard and as fast as you can, or is it once you sort of set your mind to, I'm just going to sort of do this a little bit slower and a little bit more clean, is it is you know, is it easy to ignore that urge, or is it just something that once, you, once you've once you got your mind set that you're going to do that, everything just flows?
2: It, it's something that I had to work on, um, because you know, your first urge is to go out there and see how fast you can fly the track. Um especially when that's what the majority of the guys do. They go out there and they, you know, there's a little bit of psychology warfare that you know, if uh, you know, someone posts a, a really fast time in training one, everyone else is like, wow. Hmm. It's, <laughs> it's,
3: um,
2: so, so there is that urge to go out there and, and you know, you know, beat your chest. Um, but what I found it can do, and it, and it, and it happened to me in Windsor, is, um, Windsor was the first time I tried that tactic, and uh, what it did is it just had a, a really bad um, effect on me because I went out there on the first run trying to fly the track very quickly where I wasn't ready for it. Um, I hadn't I hadn't built up enough experience uh, in in racing in general, let alone never seen the track before. And I flew my theoretical fast race lines, which ended up being too tight and cramped. Uh, and I ended up you know you know, having a terrible first, you know, a, a really hard work and didn't enjoy my first flight at all. And then that then sets. Um, you know, it, sets a, it sets a bit of a, an image in your head that uh, you know every time I went down went out to fly that track, I was like, oh, jeez, I don't know if I can do this. You know? mm-hmm. um, whereas if I had to start off slow first, baby steps, and just gone, yep, we're just going to cruise. You know? In fact, what I do most every other track since you know, prior to that and after Windsor is I fly my first run on reduced power as well. So I'm, I'm, I can stay well ahead of the plane, lots of thinking time and, uh, and, and experiment in the track. So uh, if I do that... And then I can you know, have some time to look around and and see see my environment and just become familiar with where I'm at instead of hanging on really tight and being tense. Uh, I'll then build up my comfort level in the track so that by the time I want to go really fast, which is on uh, qualifying and race day, I'm uh, I'm then ready to. Yeah, you know, I know I know all the good lines. I know the not the more conservative lines, and uh, and I can I can pick and choose. Um, can choose how I feel on the day whether if I'm feeling a little bit underconfident on a particular day I can I know I can I can ease out slightly uh, on, the, on the gate prior to give myself a little bit more turn room um, to, to remove that doubt in my head and you only get that through flying some conservative lines at the start
0: do you um, just as a side note as an interesting thing I noticed that some pilots are, are often shown on the TV feed there uh, on the ground, walking the track, sort of going through the motions with their hands. And do you do that sort of thing? Does everybody do that? Or is that just sort of something that some people do and others don't?
2: Um, I think most people visualise the track in one form or, or another. At um, a you know, I'd guess, I'd say probably 80% of the guys um, will walk the track with setting the track up in uh, with you know cans on the ground and, and just looking at it that way. Um, I don't do that. I'll definitely walk the track Um um, in, but uh, I'll do it in, uh, in, in uh, on an empty floor. Um, my reason for that is uh, just through my Air Force uh, career, uh, we, we very much educate people in the Air Force how to visualise and uh, it's a very powerful tool. Um, so I've, I've been doing that all my life and, and I'm reasonably good at visualising now. So if I then put a um, stand you know, in a room and visualise flying through the track, if I put cans on the ground to represent the track, I'll, I'll then be walking along, going. Oh, I've got to go around this can and around that can. I'm looking down at the ground, going around cans. Whereas if I'm just got a, a an empty floor in front of me, I can then engage my brain um, to see the pylons, and my, so my head's facing forward. I'll be leaning my body, I'll be g-straining, and I'm and I'm getting the full effect of being in the plane, and my head's pointing in the right direction, and I can see the horizon moving. Um, and, and it's actually up to the stage where my blood pressure goes up my heart rate goes up I'll be puffing when I finish the run hmm. uh, it gets that uh, that graphic from my own head
1: That's very good visualization.
2: Yeah it's a, it's a very very powerful tool if uh, if you do it correctly.
1: Yeah no that's uh, I know of a lot of athletes who who go through that for you know visualizing their entire sprint or things like that. So yeah very powerful.
2: Yeah yeah and and it also um, yeah, it helps. It helps with stress as well because it means that you know when you finally get out there, um, you know I, I actually, you know I actually visualised on the night before the race. I visualised um, you know getting on the podium. You know I decided, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna see what it's like, and I visualised getting on the podium and and all the process of getting up there, which you know going through the flights and then getting a rapid turnaround for the final four. But, you know if just someone just mentioned, hey, you get to the final four, you got to go. You know it's like a seven minute turnaround, you're back airborne again, high pressure situation. And when it was mentioned to me, you know, my stomach turned in a little bit of a knot and everything goes, wow, oh, that would be uh, pretty <laughs> incredible. Um, so I went home and, you know, the night before I visualised it and, you know, went through went through coming out of the Super 8 knowing, yep, I've made the Final Four, flying back to the air, fuel cooling the engine, playing the engine down landing on the short runway, taxing back in and staying in the plane while they're putting fuel and oil, doing a quick interview, calming myself down and then boom, straight back, starting up, getting back to the hold and calming myself down and diving in and flying a really good Final Four. So I went through that process so that, as it turned out, when it did happen, I was like, yep, been here before. This is cool. I'm ready for it. Instead of like, oh, no, what do I do now? <laughs> so it's very powerful, yeah.
1: Yeah, it sounds like that's possibly... Uh, are you aware of any of the other pilots doing that level of visualisation?
2: I don't know. I suspect there's, there's some of them um, that do it, um, but I suspect there's there's some of them that you know, uh, aren't really doing much at all. And um, uh, I, guess, I guess I'll bring it out there. That if they listen to this, then they'll hear it. <laughs> um, well,
0: we'd encourage uh, them to listen to our podcast, of course.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I, I think it's probably... I think it's something that's... Um, it's very beneficial. Yeah. I think it's almost required to succeed uh, consistently. But I also think it's something that, unless it's in your culture or um, or it's something that you've developed over years and years and years, it's a very it's a very hard thing to take up, you know, and introduce to an environment that you've already been involved in. So it's easy for me because I'm I'm a new guy to the sport and I'm just bringing my old systems in. Whereas some of the older, especially the veterans who have been racing for five or six years since it was um, since it started, for them to then go, okay, and now this is how you're going to do it, there'd you know, be a lot of, uh, you yeah, know, I don't need that. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it'd be interesting to, to see.
1: It, it's sort of like those pilots who have used simulators a lot and those who don't believe in them, type of thing.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's it, there's there's some people that are just setting their ways, and and it, it, they may be correct that. Um, if they tried to change their own routine now by doing this, it may have a detrimental effect um, to them for for a certain period of time until they they adapted to it.
1: Yeah, it's it's like when you change your golf game and somebody says no no no, you swing this way, it'll be better. And as you go through the transition, you go backwards until you get into that new groove.
2: It's exactly like that, and you have to have you have to have confidence that even though I'm going backwards, it's for you know, it's for the better, and mm. it will it will work for me. And yeah, it's a and that's a lot of, you know, I'm expecting I'm going to have slumps and ups and downs, and I'm just going to have to revisit my own techniques and strategies or maybe change some things. That um, yeah, it was working, and then I'll get frustrated it's not working anymore, and I may just have to change some things with the, the confidence that it's for the better.
0: So just getting back to the race, and we're talking about the track there at Porto, was that a tighter track? It looked to me, and we didn't get to see much TV coverage of the race this time down here in Australia, but um, did, was that track a tighter track than um than the one at Budapest or how did you find that?
2: Um, It was I guess it was tighter in the fact that it was narrower but there was um, but there weren't (laughs) there weren't very many turns at all so um, there was uh, it it was it was basically just a straight down and straight back there was a um, there was a a straight course with a slight dog leg at one end um, and then you do a you know half Cuban turn around it and race back up through it again a half Cuban race back down half Cuban race back up and finish so it was basically straight up and down a, uh, a very steep um, gorge uh, with, the, with the river in it. Um, the, one of the main aspects for the for it as well was there were some very uh, close crowd lines to some of the gates, um, and if you go over a crowd line in the race, you're, you're automatically disqualified. Um, so that was also something that um, was a risk to me, that I'd identified that, and they'd, they'd mentioned it in the brief, and uh, all, of the, all the pilots that have flown the track before, like, yep, been here, we know all about it, Whereas you know, the rookies didn't, you know, it's like, Well, oh, I don't know I don't know how much room we've got on those crowd lines and, and that's why we would have the training is that you can fly you can fly more aggressively in the training. If you go over a crowd line in training, they'll just tell you to stop and then you go straight back into the track again. So it's like you know, knock it off, you, you reset and back in. Then you go, When I flew that line, I went over the crowd line so I need to adjust it. Whereas we didn't get that training in um in the uh, within the training flight so I didn't know how close I was to the crowd lines and I didn't get the opportunity to see anyone else fly the track so I flew I flew a little bit more of a zigzag line in my in my race just to give myself some room against these crowd lines and I've since watched the race on television and and all the veterans they're just going straight between the gates straight at the crowd line and pulling pulling into the half cuban on the crowd line knowing that you know, knowing that it's not a problem they can make it whereas the rookies were generally all giving themselves a more conservative line because they didn't want to get disqualified and hadn't had the chance to experiment with how tight you could go. So, yep, it was, a, it was a tight track in that regard with crowd lines and, and gorges, but it was a straight line run, that's for sure.
0: That's a big factor to think of. I had not considered the uh, the crowd line factor. You also mentioned there that it was in a gorge. So when you're sort of coming up for some of your um, higher altitude manoeuvres at the top of the half cubans, were there any sort of, you know, is there a change in the wind as you come up above that gorge, or was that a factor at all, or how deep was it there?
2: Um, that wasn't really a factor, and I don't think I ever got above the, uh, the lips. Right. So, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was always down inside the gorge, so um, there, there were a few wind changes in there that uh, you could feel a little bit of movement as you'd be running towards the gate, um, but generally the wind was staying channel, channeled down the gorge, and they were fairly light winds on uh, on both qualifying and race day. But the winds can definitely be a factor in the race, that's for sure. But you near know, this one, it wasn't too bad.
1: Hmm. Okay, uh, so moving on from Porto, uh, how are you going with preparation for Barcelona?
2: Um, yeah, good. We've got the I flew the plane over to Barcelona, so it's now at the um, is it the runway uh, that we're going to be operating out of, um, Sabadell, which is just uh, to the is it north slightly to the northwest of the at the city of Barcelona, when I said slightly and you know, only probably um, fifteen kilometres. Um, and I'm now back at home. Um, I, I do quite comprehensive debriefs with myself and my team. So I've I've finished all of the debriefs now. Um, I've reviewed what worked, what didn't and um, you know just really sat down and thought about what emotions went through my head and what um, yeah, you know, how I was feeling mentally for uh for the race itself. Um, and now it's just a matter of um, i'm now just spending um, a few hours a day just just thinking about um, you know what does it mean to me for this last race because I've, I've got to be very clear in my own head this last race of uh, how I attack it because uh, just because i am now ranked third with a couple of guys um, you know, at my heels a lot of people are telling me that you know, i've got you know i can become you know, third in the world and my first year is pretty amazing um, and, and it would be but I've got to make sure i don't Start dwelling on that because then I start, you know, I, I don't get in that good frame of mind, and I start looking at who will overtake me if I make a mistake, and where where do I need to get to before I make my first mistake to guarantee a third position, and those sorts of things. So um, it, it's all it's all about trying to avoid all those thoughts, as hard as that is, and <laughs> just really concentrate on the fact that there's just another race, and I've just got to go in there and um, and fly the track as smoothly and as cleanly as possible once again. Same philosophy as last time. Hopefully with some more training, so I can actually experiment and take you know, some risks in training and find out how far I can push certain corners, uh, and then uh, and then go into the race.
0: It's interesting you talk about your, your standings and already being third there. Uh, Grant and I were listening to some sound clips uh, that you've done, uh, I guess coming up to this season, and uh, one of them you'd mentioned that uh, you were quite confident of uh, being in the top three by next year. Well, you're already ahead of the ahead of your own game, I guess in that regard.
2: <laughs> yeah yeah well it's been a, it's been a funny year as well like there, there has been um, yeah some uh, some luck involved but I, I guess that's you know that's what racing is all about I don't think there's any luck for Paul Bonham or um, Hannah sark being where they are um, but for me there's definitely been some luck that you know it's involved yeah you, know, um, you know for example uh, you know it was unfortunate that Kirby um, had a, a fuel leak uh, in his plane um, yeah, he he, would probably have beaten me, but then again, not definitely in that race. But I think little things like that. So I've had a few things go my way this season, which have have definitely helped my position. Although I've also, (laughs) I think, managed to keep everything on rails reasonably well to be consistent enough to take the opportunity when those those things popped up. I was in the right place at the right time to then uh, take the position.
0: Do you reckon with all this uh, constant positive thought and concentration at the end of this season, you're just going to sit down for about a week and go, Phew, "I need a rest."
2: <laughs> Definitely. That, that's. Uh, I'm already. Um, I'm already looking forward to that side of things. Yeah, you know, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to being home. I, I, you know, I miss Australia at the moment, and um, I'm looking forward to yeah, just sitting, you know, sitting in my house and having some friends over and just. Just reflecting on what what's happened this year, because I you know to tell the truth, I haven't had a lot of time to um, to rejoice in what's happened happened so far. Because uh, you know, i I tend to spend too much time looking forward and and not enjoying the moment or uh, or reflecting on the on the past. So definitely for um, you know, for at least a couple of days when I get home. But we've uh, got a lot of work to do as soon as I get home. i have got a lot of work to do to um, to start getting next year under control, including uh, getting the uh, getting the new race plane. Um, set up and tested and um, fine-tuned for me.
0: And how's that plane coming along, just out of interest?
2: Uh, pretty well, actually. It's um, I've been talking to the factory probably uh, every second day uh, in America from uh, over here in Europe. Uh, I've got some friends in, in Australia that are also uh, helping me with the, the design of it because we like, we're manipulating the design of the plane quite a bit to uh, make it faster. Um, and I've got my technician in the US at the moment who's uh, working uh, on on uh, getting the most horsepower out of the engine for me so there's a lot of there's a lot of elements that are working for me to get the plane going uh, it's still on track at the moment um, to, to hopefully get airborne uh, late December and then um, and then that means then we've got uh, about two months in January and February to uh, to put some hours on the engine um, they'll always produce more power after they're about 50 hours old so we want to get the hours flown off the engine and um, and then just getting to fine-tuning the, you know, the cooling system and the, the flight control. So it, the, the flying the flying matches my style, and so that uh, we're not wasting uh, drag through overcooling the engine, and on the other side, we're not cooking the engine through, um, you know, trying to keep it too tight.
0: Okay. Is there much of a limitation, sorry Grant, is there much of a limitation on, for instance, if you look at Formula One racing, you know, that's very, very tightly controlled in what specifications they can put on their... Uh, on the Formula One cars, is it a similar sort of regime with the uh, with the Red Bull aircraft, or is it pretty much open slather?
2: No, it's very very tightly controlled on what we can do with the planes. Um, the airframe itself um, has uh, minimum weight limits, um, just so the uh, guys don't try and trim weight off uh, you know in the wrong ways and, and get, start getting unsafe. Uh, and the airframe itself is that there's only three airframes at the moment that are approved, and they have to be. Um, any modifications done to the airframe have to be in- approved by the, the original manufacturers, um, you know, that it's, a, that it's a safe to do so. As far as the engine, there's huge, huge limits on the engine to what we can do because, uh, you know, with an engine you can, you know, you can produce, you know, huge amounts of horsepower from an engine if you're prepared to accept the risk of, of um, you know, blowing it up. And uh, that's a risk that you know, we can't accept in the race because you know, it's not like a, a car race. You blow your engine up and you, you get out you throw your safety helmet and you kick the tire and, <laughs> the and walk away. Yeah. So it's a pretty serious event for us if we lose the engine.
0: Yeah, I guess. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah. So uh, there's there's very strict uh, requirements on the engine, and our, our engines that we're using are definitely not the most hot, high, the highest horsepower engines that you can get of that particular size. The the uh, Lycoming like 540. Um, but we're getting we're getting as much out of them as we can. We're limited to the compression ratios. Uh, we're limited to um, the RPM. We're limited to who can actually manufacture or who can work on the engines. There's only I think three companies that are allowed to work on the engine um, when when it's being rebuilt. Um, there's um, there's uh, limits to the the parts that we can use, the types of magneto's we can use. So uh, it's very very finely controlled, and and every year. That's reviewed as well, and it's not. It, it, I guess it's not reviewed to keep the sport, um, you know, uh, from progressing. It's uh, it's the two reasons. The first is so that the um, the engines remain very very reliable, and the second thing is to keep um, keep a, a flatter development curve, if you will, until the sport gets more money behind it, uh, because if it if they unleashed it to the person that has the most money to spend, that means if someone's got good backing or a good sponsor or you know, some, some uh, way of getting um, you know, a lot of money into the engine, they're almost guaranteed to win the series or the championship and uh, then it sort of gets a little bit boring for people. So they're, they're trying to keep the development a little bit capped so that you know, people like me that don't have a sponsor as yet can still be competitive by not having to you know, throw hundreds of thousands of dollars per engine into it. As I say, so once I think once the the sport gets uh, more money behind it and the sponsors are all on board and all the teams will then start to get a bigger budget they can spend. I think they'll start lifting the uh, the caps on uh, development, still keeping the engines very reliable, but you'll start seeing some uh, some massive amounts of horsepower coming out of these engines with uh, a lot more money being spent on them.
1: Hmm. Wow. That's that's fascinating stuff because. Yeah, it's one thing I've seen with Formula One, you know, you've got your Ferraris pumping millions of dollars in and just until recently always coming out the out of the front. Uh, so it'll be in, quite interesting to see what does happen with the, uh, you know, as you said, with things start to increase and so on. Uh, I have I know back in the 30s and so on, a lot of the work done in the air racing then has was leading to a lot of the breakthroughs that we now, well, we were up until the 60s and so on re- relying on until we got the next breakthroughs with the Jets.
2: Yeah, and I think that's I think that's going to be happening. Um, you know, in the, I think the sport aviation um, market and even even the commercial industry is going to take a lot of lessons out of what we're doing. There's guys are guys are spending a lot of money on aerodynamic efficiencies uh, while uh, reducing weight and and maintaining super strong structures. Um, you know, these planes are super strong. Um, but we're we're keeping the weight down and we're keeping the reliability up and um, you know, high speed. I, I was looking at my cow, um, and and I, I'm doing a lot of work on my cow at the moment, and um, for the next for the next season. And uh, I was I was talking about you know what, looking at Bonhams for an example and telling some people about it, and someone said uh, you know but he's he's spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on his aircraft developing that. And my response to that is not, I'm going to spend thousands of dollars copying it.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, and that's exactly right. It's it's you watch what everyone else is doing and you try and replicate what seems to be working.
2: Yeah, uh, for sure. And yeah, they, they've, they've done a lot of development and, and they, they acknowledge that. They say, you know, you got, they talk to the, say, you guys got to so say, well, you're walking in and we've already done all of the research. And they, they have, they've done a, a lot of the research up until now. But if this sport goes the way I'm expecting it will, there's a whole heap more research yet to be done, and a whole heap more development yet to be done. And then, in five years' time, I'm going to be talking with the new guys. The new guys have got it easy now. millions <laughs> into research. So, uh, I think it's going to be continually uh, developing in that regard.
0: It's almost reminiscent, isn't it, of say back in the 20s and 30s when uh, when all the air race scene was going on in the really early days, wasn't it? When development just went on a huge, huge, steep curve all of a sudden, and there was uh, some really, really amazing aircraft developed in that time sort of coming up before world war Two, and it's i guess when you look at it that way yeah. it's almost a similar concept yeah
2: and, and i already i already had little thoughts in my head that you know in in 10 or 15 years time we'll, you know we'll pull out an old dvd of uh, you know the 2009 race and go Geez, look at what we're all flying yeah <laughs> they look like normal planes you yeah uh, that's That sort of thing will probably happen, you know. It's just like, know, the car racing and everything. That initially cars, the racing cars were just stock cars racing around until they turn into Formula One. It's like, wow, that's you know quite an evolution. And yeah, but yeah, some of the things I hear about where the sport could end up is, uh, you know, just mind blowing about what we're going to be flying and how tight the tracks will become. And uh, you know, it's a you know, it's going to be extremely physically demanding and it's uh, but it's going to be absolutely spectacular of uh, what we can achieve in these these uh, generations to come race planes if uh, as long as we uh, as, as the sport continues to develop like uh, like it's planned
1: excellent well actually one question I'm, I'm sorry I should know the answer on this but your, your new aircraft is a derivation of the MXS isn't it
2: the yeah so it still will be an MXS yeah um, but yeah. um, on'm the I guess um, And this is where I guess what we've been talking about is uh, my current plane. um, The the MXS was designed, was built from the MX2, and it was specifically built initially to be um, a single seat race plane Uh, because they had the the MX2 was 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 built as an aerobatic plane uh, before the racing was even around, Um, and then uh, Nigel Lamb. You know, thought oh, that would be interesting, and he just flew a stock MX2, and then they uh, approached the company and said, can we can we get one that's a bit lighter, maybe a single seater to race in? So they developed the MXS, which was going to be available for racing, but also a single seat aerobatic plane. Um, and that and that's pretty much what I've got. I've got a you know an aerobatic single single seat unlimited aerobatic plane with some mods on it to go past, such as the wingtips. Um, and, uh, and, a, and a lower flow rate cowl to try and go a bit faster. Whereas next year, I'm taking the almost, you could say I'm taking a chassis of an MXS and I'm, I'm set, setting it up right from day one as a race plane. So my plane won't be actually set up for doing unlimited aerobatics. Uh, it's going to have um, less slow speed control authority. It's going to have um, not enough Engine cooling available to do aerobatics. Uh, you know, it's going to be the sort of plane that I can't slow it down um, to do tumbles or snap rolls because the engine will overheat. Um, you know, it, so it will be a dedicated, um, a dedicated race plane that can be, uh, you know, afterwards retrofitted back on onto the same chassis to, to make it an aerobatic plane. So all those, all those developments. Are, you know, it's where it's all heading. But you know, I'm still. I'm still using an aerobatic chassis to build my race plane. And then the next step will be, we're not even using an aerobatic chassis anymore. We're, we're building, you know, right from step one, an, an MXR as opposed to an MXS, an MX yep. race plane, that uh, cannot be retrofitted in hindsight as an aerobatic plane. Once they, start, once they start building it, this thing is dedicated as a race plane and that's all it's going to be good for.
1: Yeah, a ground-up racer. Huh. Wow. Exactly. Now, now a few of our listeners uh, are aerobatic pilots and uh, the question was thrown at me that next time I chat with you, a few of the gang want to know like, how does the MXS handle compared to like, MX-2 and, uh, and the pits and any other aerobatics aircraft you've flown? Um,
2: I, I really like it. It's, um, it's a, a lot of the way that planes fly is um, you know, about how you set up the controls. Uh, and then you'll end up having a limit then on... um, on, You're setting them up to a certain level and then you'll hit a physical limit of that aircraft because it just does not have enough control deflection to to move the plane any faster. So it's all about how fast you can either roll the plane, uh, stop the plane, uh, pitch the plane, um, you know, yaw the plane, How, how, how much authority do you have to make it do that and how quickly can you make it do it. And the MXS... Uh, I still have not found the limit on on uh, on rolling it and pitching it and yawing it. Uh, one thing because you know I haven't tried to because I'm not flying as an aerobatic plane, but uh, I have flown the you know, the prototype MXS you know, quite aggressively in aerobatics, and I've also flown the MX2 quite a- quite aggressively in aerobatics. And uh, and for me, it's uh, it's been the most ideal plane for me to fly in aerobatics, just because you can. The limit is is the pilot. Not the uh, not the airframe, and, and even Rob Holland, who's is uh, the current uh, uh, Advanced World Aerobatic Champion, who's a, who's a mate of mine flying their MX2, uh, he is still tweaking his aircraft to get more out of it because he initially set it up because it was it was still beyond not beyond his capabilities, but beyond what he could fly accurately uh, and confidently every time. So he's still he's still getting more and more out of his aircraft. Um, you know, number of years down the track as the world champion. So fantastic aircraft, that's for sure. Excellent Wow
0: Now we've got a little clip here to play for you Matt Um, It's uh, just Steve Jones talking So I'll just pop that in here Yeah brilliant flying from Matt We knew it was only a matter of time before uh, Matt Hall got on the podium Great flying from him That's bumped him from 5th to 3rd in the championship So uh, you know we've got really high hopes for Matt Great flying Now of course he's going to say that he's coaching you Is that right? Well
2: he was uh, I've heard it said a few times that he's coaching me um, what, how that came about was um, the when the rookies all started, they um, the management decided that uh, it was a it was a risk to have four rookies coming in, and they they definitely needed somebody looking after them to give them advice on you know, how to be safe. So um, what they did is uh, the race actually employed Steve um, to look after the rookies while doing his commentary job, and you know, every morning sit us down, and talk about you know what to look out for on the track and how how not to kill ourselves basically and um, so he was known as the rookie coach and then so that caught on that you know steve was the rookie coach and then as soon as i started doing well everyone's like oh, that's not fair because steve's coaching him
3: you know, <laughs> uh, there's a,
2: there a lot of comments from other pilots like, was like oh, if i had a coach from day one i would have been doing well too so um and then as we approached the third race because i was i was ranked i think i was ranked at, you know fifth at the time in the yep. championship and i've got my rookie coach Basically, the pilots made a union and went to the manager and said, "We think he's safe. We don't think he should be coached anymore." <laughs> <laughs> so, so Red Bull, the the air racer, withdrew their um, employment of Steve as the rookie coach at that point. So, um, but we we developed a relationship anyway, and um, and we still you know, Steve and I still. Uh, talk um, about um, you know, basically I I tell him what I'm planning on doing and it's also his plane that I'm flying as well so I just feel you know, obligated to do that. But, you know, I'm going to fly this one aggressively, I'm going to back off slightly here and, uh, and this is what I found and, and he wouldn't would just say yeah be careful of this or that um, but he's, uh, he's, not, he's, not, uh, he's not spending a lot of time coaching me that's for sure. But, yeah, I, I, he and I um always find it amusing when we hear it being said that uh, yeah, he's either coaching me or helping me, actually a rumour went around at Porto that I'd put a new engine in the plane um, and to make it faster <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, I, I heard this rumour and I started going yeah well Steve's really looking after me you know, not only is he coaching me, he bought me a new engine as well Oh what plane. a tough <laughs> mic. and then I was standing in front of a crowd of people with Steve sort of nearby and I called out to Steve and I said thanks for the new engine, it went really well <laughs> so he's, he's he thinks it's pretty funny, and everyone else is like, it's got them like, oh, I don't know what's going on. Is Steve coaching him or not? Has he bought him a new <laughs> engine? What's going on?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a way to play the psych game, mate. That's beautiful. Well,
2: yeah, well, that's right. And, uh, you know, I find it pretty funny, and, and Steve's a great guy as well, so he finds it funny. He's uh, he's uh, he, he's one of those guys that uh, he's classic uh, British sarcasm, and uh, he's dry as anything. Some, a lot of the guys don't know how to take him because he's so dry.
1: <laughs> The dry British wit meets the Aussie larrikin. This
0: yep.
2: is
1: great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> of course, we watched Steve
0: fly in Perth last year when I was over there, and uh, I was I was impressed. Uh, I think, as I said in the last time we talked to you, I really liked the British style of flying with the smooth uh, lines and the way they do it. And um, yeah, he was he was like that. So yeah, I was actually quite surprised uh, that he wasn't uh, racing himself this season. Yeah. Well, um, it ended. up, uh,
2: you know, He didn't get a slot to race, and and. It, it, there's probably um, yeah you know, there's probably a bit of uh, both sides to it as well. I think um, yeah you know, Steve had been in it since the start and it is a you know it is a stressful um, you know lifestyle in some ways that you know you're always you're always under the microscope and then every morning you know during the race week you get up with butterflies and those sorts of things and uh, Steve, Steve loves to uh, relax and uh, enjoy life as well. So uh, I think I think his new role in the Red Bull Air Race fits him uh, reasonably well as well. So, he, he's
0: um, looking pretty relaxed behind the camera. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think he's I think he's taken like taken that like a duck to water, and uh, <laughs> he's enjoying it, and he's enjoying helping me. And uh, you know, I've suggested to him a few times he should take uh, take my plane up for a run through the tracks, something, and he's <laughs> like, Yeah, now nah, I'm just going to have a beer. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, he's, he's a he's a very talented pilot himself. You know, he's a he's a, a world uh, formation aerobatic champion. Um, you know, with the the Matadors, and he and Paul Bonham. Um, has won multiple world titles uh, flying formation aerobatics in their Sukhoi so he's a very very talented pilot, probably one of the best formation pilots in the world And uh, but he's just so relaxed
1: Wow, cool actually I've, I've got a question um, you've mentioned about, uh, we, when we spoke last time we spoke about how everyone's pretty cool and chummy in the pilots and uh, you know, now you just mentioned how they all got together and said nah, get Steve out and all that kind of stuff how, how's the tent, How's things going as we get closer to Barcelona? Is it uh, is it a bit of rivalry picking up? I think it's getting a little tense, or is everyone still pretty cool and relaxed?
2: I wouldn't say it's tense, but you can definitely see a change. Um, uh, you, you can the, the championship is not just about who's going to win. Uh, every pilot has their own agenda, whether it's to beat so and so or try and make. You try, they think they look at the standing and go, "Yeah, I'm only." I'm only th- if I get another three points up in the standings, I can jump from you know ninth place to to fifth place, and all those little things. So I think everybody going to this last race is is looking at their standings and trying to trying to hustle because you know your standings at the end of the year, in the end, that's that's what really counts. Is uh, you know that's where you finished up for the year, not not where you managed to get a podium out of luck or not uh, that one race that you blew. It's all about how you manage throughout the year. So, I can definitely see it with with some of the pilots. Um, I could definitely see it in some of the interviews that I saw or was involved in, with with some of the pilots talking about um, their philosophy going into the last race. Um, So, it will be an interesting last race, that's for sure. The track is interesting, uh, and every single pilot has a reason to try and you know try and get some extra points to, to elevate themselves in the championship. You know, to, I think the first and the second place, they're, you know, they're untouchable and they're battling within themselves. And the battle for third place is open between myself, Mangold, Shambles, um, Ivanov. <clears throat> so there's four of us battling, really you know, realistically battling you know, within four points, I think, of each other for that third place. And that means, you know, there's four of us. That means I can end up in seventh if I have a bad race. So mm. there's, there's there's a very very tight battle in that centre field, and then there's uh, down at the uh, the back end, you've got um, you know Matthias Dolder is all of a sudden uh, you know you know got getting some points and and he's overtaking uh, Alex McLean and he's uh, you know, probably even getting um, Nigel Ann in his sights at the moment as well. So there'll be there'll be those guys looking at Matthias going, I can't let him beat me as well. as another rookie at Matthias <laughs> going, I want those guys.
3: And then right down the
2: back, you've, you've got uh, you know Pete, Yoshi, and um, and Glendale all within uh, two points for the wooden spoon. And that's that's a fairly big incentive as well to uh, try and get some points on the board. So it, it's going to be a really interesting race for everyone's got their own personal reason for. It. And as I said, it's going to be a, a pretty interesting course to fly as well.
0: Yeah, of course, you've got uh, Mike Mangold only two points behind you on 31, and you're on 33, so Mike Mangold appears to be quite a fierce competitor, so uh, you're going to have your hands full by the looks of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, to tell you the truth, he's not my main concern. Um, yeah, speaking openly, is his, his aircraft is not as um, as capable as mine at the moment, I don't think. So I've always found that if I fly a clean race, I'm always flying faster times than, than Mike. And he's managed to, um, he's beaten me in two races now through me making an error and him flying cleanly. So, um, so that's where, if I, if I fly a clean race, he's not a threat. Um, you know, obviously if I fly a bad race, everyone can overtake me. Um, you've got people like, uh, Nicholas who, uh, who can definitely, uh, you know, if he has a good, good race and this is a turning track coming up and he's classically done well on turning tracks such as, it's very similar to Abu Dhabi and San Diego where he came third and first. So he's definitely got some potential to uh, to do well. Um, you've got uh, Kirby as well, who's with his new engine that he's he's got a lot of power since he's put his new engine in. He's been um, you know in the top in the top three for every race or or qualifying um, you know without without his uh, his mechanical problem he had at the last race. So he's definitely got a, you know, a podium in him potentially as well. So yeah, I see um, I see uh, Kirby and Nicholas. With definite podium potential, and uh, yeah, that sort of then means to me straight up that I've got a yeah, If I do any worse than a fifth or a sixth, I'm I'm going backwards rapidly. So uh, <laughs> that's where I need to also say. Well, I've got a podium in me as well, um, and, and just do as well as I can. And you know I go, already talking about who I've got to be and what I've got to do. What to do. Just like I said, I wasn't thinking like like that.
3: Oh, sorry about that. <laughs>
2: yeah, now yeah, good I'm, one, Steve. Now I'm yeah, good. I'm sorry, I'm shaking sorry. and sweating now.
1: <laughs> oh, there, there goes our end of season interview. Oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. We're uh, mate, we're really appreciating everything you're telling us here because. Uh, I know it's not being beamed out to the masses in terms of the whole world listening, but uh, we're only a small very small.
2: Yeah,
1: there is that. <laughs> but uh, we really appreciate the fact that you're um, you're taking the time to have a chat with us here and, and all uh, I mean I'm I'm just in awe of everything I'm hearing. It's it's just great news. Uh, Steve, have you got any other Red Bull related questions at the moment? I think
0: we've just about covered everything there. I mean, I've probably got, you know, two or three hundred other questions I could ask you, Matt, but I'm sure you've got other things you need to do with your day.
1: I, I do actually have one question that I'd love to squeeze in, mate. Uh, well, yep. actually, two, but the first one is is flying related, definitely. And that's, mate, you own a uh, P yep. 51. As, aside from how freaking jealous I am of that, uh, how is that aircraft to fly?
2: it's um it's a fantastic plane it's actually uh yeah i i miss flying it at the moment being over here because it's it's um it's about as romantic as they come and it's and it's an easy plane to fly as long as you you treat it well um it, it could turn around and bite you so quick it's not funny if you tried to do something that's uh, not nice in it or treat it with uh, with not enough respect but for um it's the sort of plane you fly. You have to respect it because you know what it's done and just its history. You, you
3: know,
2: yep. to get every time I you know walk up to it, you know in the morning and it's sitting in the in the hangar and yeah, you know, it's like wow, what a machine and everything about getting it written, You know, just doing the pre flight is exciting because it's just such a such a fantastic machine. And then you know, um, it's a two seater, so I take people flying in it as well and. <laughs> no, I that often was my next like question. I people-
0: yes, I, 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 if I told you where our local airfield was, I, you <laughs>
1: know, just... <laughs> well, my next question yeah, is, but- do you offer rides and how much?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there's rides for sale. I think it's uh, mustangflights.com.au is, uh, is, is where to find it. and or it's, or it's on my website as well. There's a link there. But uh, I often feel like I'm, I make people think they're wasting their money because um, just before the engine starts... I- I often turn around to the to the passenger and say, "Yeah, this is the best part of the flight," and I crank the engine. <laughs> and then I think, well, oh, I shouldn't have said that." <laughs> 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 but, yeah, yeah it's like every every part of the experience is just yeah, you know, taxiing with the canopy back and the you know the engines are designed so they run very well at high RPM, but At a low RPM they're cranky engines and you know. They, they're backfiring and there's yep. smoke and flames coming out yep. the exhaust as you're, you're taxiing around with the canopy open and it uh, you know it's just really really noisy but that's just so amazing and then
3: oh, and yeah. the takeoff
2: itself just the power from the takeoff is um you know it's uh, it it's the the thrust you get on takeoff is more than uh, I experience in an F18 it's just it's just
3: oh wow right hmm.
2: into the back of the seat yeah so. Yeah, for the first part anyway. It doesn't it doesn't keep doing that to 600 knots and then go <laughs> vertical. But uh, get, getting up to 100 or 120 knots, it's, um, you know it's uh, the sound and the feel, um, and there's so much talk in it. Um, as you as the power comes on, there's so much talk that the aircraft actually rolls to the left. Um, um, while it's on the ground, so you, you put the power in, and, and the wow. left, uh, the, the left shock absorber, the left oleo compresses, and the plane rolls because the, the, the propeller uh, you know, is grabbing so much air. It's yeah. quite amazing.
0: That's always something that's fascinated me about those uh, those huge aircraft. Just say the P fifty one and the Spitfire is just how much you, effort you've got to put into on takeoff to counter the torque effect. Obviously, it's yeah, a lot. Well,
2: um, <laughs> Yeah, well, um, it's actually as long as you do it right, it's not too bad. There's there's a little bit of roll from um, from that, and then if if you tried to lift the tail straight away, which it's got enough authority in the elevator to lift the tail if you wanted to, but if you did that um, below about 50 knots, you're not going to be able to hold it straight. It's just going to um, it's just going to ground loop on you. So uh, we actually, you know, I'll hold the stick all the way back in my stomach. Uh, We've got a a steerable tail wheel which is uh, locked uh, to plus or minus six degrees. So it's durable with only, only to six degrees with full full rudder deflection huh. to keep it straight. So, um, so as I put the power in, I'll take it all the way up to about 55 inches of manifold pressure, which is, you know, if know, um, that's quite a bit. That's a lot. <laughs> and um, Yeah, so we'll get 55 inches on takeoff. Um, there's, that's a pilot limit as well. You can actually blow the engine up. You can just keep moving it up until the engine blows. There's no, oh. It's not like a normal spotter where you hit a stop. So we will manually drive it up to 55 inches with the stick full back and about then you should be hitting about 50 knots but you wait until 50 knots and then you just take some back pressure out of the, um, out of the stick and just let the tail slowly come up and uh, you'll end up, you know, especially if there's a slight crosswind from the, uh, from the left, you'll end up quite easily with full right rudder and uh, holding it straight there.
1: Wow. That's, that's pretty full on. I mean, I, I work at uh, Avalon Airshow typically. Uh, the last few I've been working at the uh, Warbirds Tarmac. And, uh, yeah, I just, just love when we've got the P-51s there and uh, the, Kitty, the Kitty Hawk, Warhawk aircraft and things like that. And just those sounds of the Merlins and Allisons kicking over on idle as they're waiting to go out. I mean, uh, yeah. Trapo. Trappo let me sit in his uh, Mustang cockpit one time. That's the closest I've got to it. That and climbing over Judy Pays one, one time at Albury. Trappo. Uh, Have a listen yeah. to you. You name dropper. Well, I think, <laughs> I think his full name is squadron leader Trappett, but I, oh, I suddenly dear. realized all I could remember was Trappo. <laughs> I'm so sorry
3: about that. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: It's cool. He probably well, doesn't de-
2: Definitely. A, it's a fantastic experience. Yeah. Um, I've had some aircraft, you know, taking, uh, you know, taking uh, either, um, World War Two veterans for a fly. Um, yeah. you know, I've, I've I've met the pilot who flew uh, 769, who's our our Mustang uh, with the nose art. Um, he he wasn't able to go for a fly because he was um he was, he was a bit too frail. Uh, but definitely taking taking uh, the next generation flying whose father or uncle um you know, was flying Mustangs and you know, I've landed a number of times and the person in the back seat crying and it's, it's it's quite a quite an emotional experience to have yeah you know, that 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 involvement with people, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a beautiful plane and it's a beautiful experience, that's for sure.
1: Wow. Very full on. Gene, I was just asking fact, how it
3: flew.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it flies really well. Oh, that, I'm actually oh, doing crazy. a display. Um, last time we were talking, you actually asked about, you know, what events am I doing uh, in the future? I forgot I forgot about an event I'm doing uh, in October. I'm, I'm taking the Mustang down to Tomorrow We're gonna have the, the, the flying days down at Tomorrow yeah, yeah, at the yeah. museum there. And, uh, and I'm taking our Mustang down for that to uh, to do a display uh, on each day. So, um, if people wanted to come down there and have a look, and you know, I'm, I'll just be hanging around and talking to people as well. So, uh, come on down tomorrow, and, um, and you know, that'd be a great flying day because we'll have the Mustang and plus, you know, all their normal stuff with the Spitfires, and you know, yeah. we'll probably do some formation work together. And you know, it'd be, uh, be a really nice flying day down there, that's for sure. And the Sabre. Yeah, in the Sabre. You know, the made a help The two guys, final Sabre, both mates and mine. We've actually been saying that we need to. but We'll probably, you know, in the near future, have um, a Warbird lineup. You know, where we'll uh, we'll bring the, um, yeah, you know, the we're, we're we're closing in the gaps. You we'll know, the Spitfire, then the, the Mustang, the, the Vampire, and yep. you know, the Meteor, and then into the Sabre, where we're really closing in uh, the gaps. You know, we then just need to get a, a Mirage out there and, <laughs> and, and we're filled in all the gaps, haven't we?
1: Yeah, no, definitely and if you put an 18 in there to um, show current, then you're yep. that would be one hell of a heritage flight I'd be showing up for that
2: yeah. one <laughs> Yeah, well if anyone got to the uh, um, Ambly Airshow uh, last year, uh, we did a similar thing I flew the Mustang in that and um, and then we had uh, the Mustang, the Vampire the Meteor, uh, Hawk and Hornet, and I, uh, so I led that uh, fly past and that was a that was pretty special. Wow. The funny thing was that uh, I was briefing the mission and I uh, was talking about the speeds and what I was going to do because I'm I'm flying the propeller-driven aircraft, the Mustang. Yeah. Everyone else is in jets. So yeah, so we'll come streaming in. Uh, you now, probably we'll hold about 320, 330 knots for the first pass and and. Um, poodle who's flying the, the saber uh, sorry not save the um the vampire is oh sorry i'm limited to 300 knots <laughs> so he's in the jet and now uh, he's the one saying i oh, know you've got to slow down
1: <laughs> oh that's that's like it uh i was at one of the last Anzus air shows at ohakia in 1980 area and uh the p3 orion from the kiwis did a beautiful display my father used to fly in them and uh as the guy leaves, the um, announcer goes, well, Lego's the second fastest aircraft in the Kiwi inventory. And you could see a few people going, hang on, you've got the A4 Skyhawk, you've got the the Strike Master, they're both jets. Wait a minute. <laughs> and, yeah. And the P3 yeah, could
0: out, not
3: out,
1: necessarily out. fast. <laughs> not always.
0: Well, of no. course, uh, it was only a week or two back, I was uh, flying a Piper Warrior and thinking, gee, wouldn't it be good if I could get it up to 100 knots? <laughs> 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 yeah,
1: well,
2: that's speed's always relative to what you're doing at the time, yeah. I'll tell you what. I, and we start to get an extra kilometre <laughs> uh, an
0: I, I tell you what, it was flying, and for me, it doesn't happen often enough. It was a thrill. Yeah, uh, that, was, <laughs> that was the dawn patrol at,
1: uh, out of Royal Vic. Okay.
0: And that other event that uh, we we couldn't work out what it was the last time we spoke, the Showusher Wheels. I think
1: it's up at Newmerker in uh, Northern Victoria. Yeah.
2: Yeah, we yeah, that's the one. Yeah, we
1: got some more info on that. I'll, I'll, I'll look up the uh, tomorrow dates because uh, I'm looking for an excuse to go to tomorrow. So if you're there in October, that'd be great. The, I was looking at going up to New South Wales for the... Um, just north of, New, of Tomorrow for the uh, New South Wales aerobatics uh, over um, the, the 30th, 31st area. But a friend yep. of mine has just announced that they're yep. having his wife's birthday on the Saturday night. So that's probably kibosh those whole plans.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, that's another event for people to get to... Um I, I I may or may not be there, but uh, definitely for people who go to uh, tomorrow is where the the contest is being held, and that's the first right, weekend yeah. of November. Um, which yeah, so if you want to, if you're interested in aerobatics, um, that's the place to go because that's where um, yeah, you know, yeah, it's a New South Wales championship, but it, but it also it's an open invite to all the other states. So we'll have people from uh, we've got some people from Perth coming. Got all the Victorians and the Queenslanders come down for it. So. It's it's yep. almost the num- same number as a national competition, and uh, it'll be from everyone from their first competition right through the guys trying to uh, get the title.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm talking to a couple of the guys down here, just still keeping my options open. We've got to see how this one develops, but uh, could be tricky to. You
2: <laughs> you need, what you I need can to do. write a really nice birthday card and buy a really nice present, and then just <laughs> leave it there <laughs>
3: and head up north.
1: <laughs> the wheels are moving, mate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: All right, mate. Well, we've probably taken up uh, far too much of your time already. Um, uh, Grant, did you have anything else you wanted to, to ask?
1: Uh, only to ask, how was your birthday in Austria, mate?
2: Yeah, it was, it was good. We uh, we did absolutely nothing and I, I relaxed for the first time in a number of days. So it was uh, it was really nice. And it was actually it was the first birthday I've had where um, I've been, uh, you know, not been in the military and I've been some someone that, uh you know, people are looking at. So it was interesting to all of a sudden get a heap of birthday wishes on Facebook and things from people I don't know who they are. So uh, thanks to everyone for, um, for acknowledging my birthday. It's quite an amazing thing to happen.
1: <laughs> Especially with that uh, third place birthday present to yourself.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I was pretty happy with what I gave myself there. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
0: Well, we're really thrilled the last time uh, to think we could even get you on for uh, one of our shows was uh, great, Matt, and uh, it's just a a, a huge thrill again for us that you uh, could come back on and talk to us again tonight, so uh, we really, really thank you very much for that and um, uh, I hope we can catch up with you again, uh, perhaps in person, maybe the next time uh, when you're uh, back in Australia.
2: Yeah, for sure. uh, I always enjoy talking to you guys and, uh, as I said last time, it's a great concept, great product and... uh, You're
0: easy to talk to, so um, any (laughs) time. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. Wow. What can you say, Grant? Another fantastic interview and certainly another one that went for a lot longer than we had anticipated it would.
1: Uh, Yeah, we were were looking at half an hour and we got the full hour. And, uh, no, it's it's just great to chat with Matt. He's a lot of fun. And to say about the P-51... Mate, when he was talking about the, uh, you know, sitting there and popping and backfiring and, and being cantankerous on the ground as it's idling, oh man, I was just bringing back so many memories of, of the sounds of those Merlins and oh, talk about your aeroneurophagosis. <laughs>
0: no, I'll, I'll tell you what, and you know, you, there is nothing like you go to any air show and there's nothing like the sound of a uh, Rolls Royce Merlin with the throttle wide open going straight over your head. There's just no, I mean, you can have your jets and all the rest and they're all fantastic as well, but for me, that that just does it for me. Any time I hear it. <sighs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, isn't it interesting how um I mean you know, we, I mean that interview's gone for a good hour again, and um you know it, it leaves me, I you know I can talk to the guy for, for probably another three hours. It just every time I um every time we've done an interview with him, we've done the two now. I just think of you know another 50, 60 questions I can ask him that just seem to flow. But uh, yep, no, hopefully uh, we can save those up for uh, later dates. Hopefully yeah yeah you don't want to you don't want to have him sitting in the chair screaming you know
1: <laughs> no 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 more please <laughs>
0: no. so to matt hall uh legend mate thanks very much again for coming back on. we were thrilled the last time we're stoked again this time and um you yeah, like i said at the end of that interview um hopefully um he'll be back in australia soon so uh, hopefully we'll uh, get to meet him at yeah. some time in
1: the near future it's going to be great for matt's going to be in uh, tomorrow for their october flying days which is the 24th and 25th of october um he'll be there with his mustang so i'm I'm going to do what I can to get there. I think I'll, uh, yeah. I don't know if I can make both both events, uh, both the Tamora Flying Days and the New South Wales Aerobatics. In my dreams, I can. But um, if I was going to make one of them, I think I'd probably actually go and do a visit to Tamora.
0: Yeah, that's somewhere I've never been, and somewhere I, I must get up to. I must get up there one day. Um,
1: probably though, I'd probably get up there and never leave. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, 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 I met a few of the Tamora crew when they came to the Aubrey Air Show that I covered back in two thousand and two very long time ago so yeah they were a great punch then so i definitely want to see them on their home turf yep
0: excellent now uh grant uh, just before we go we've uh we've had a little subject here that we've been uh talking about about amongst ourselves for a little while and um we just wanted to uh throw it out there we're a little bit uh, uncomfortable about doing it but anyway we'll just throw it out there and we'll see how it goes and uh that is of course um of course every podcast uh that we listen to relies on some form of contribution from uh, their listeners. And um, we sort of find ourselves in a position now where we may need to look at some sort of uh, small contribution model to um, support mainly our bandwidth costs and um, our production Costs and such like. So uh, we do, we're going to uh, put a tip jar on our website, folks. So now, of course, like every podcast, it's uh, not compulsory and we're not asking for big bucks and it's not going towards the Steve Fisher Retirement Fund.
1: No, it's going to the Grand McCarran ret- Oh, sorry. No.
0: Yeah, so folks, um, if you like what you hear and you don't uh, intend to uh, make any sort of um, career out of this, but uh, there are a few little minor costs that are uh, associated with um, putting this sort of production together. So we're, we're asking for... Um, Uh, some voluntary donations only very small maybe a a dollar here or a dollar there would be uh, very much appreciated if um if you could support us that would be fantastic and that money would go towards uh, as i say supporting our hosting costs and uh you know our our, um, our fuel costs when we're getting ourselves out to air shows to uh, do these interviews we've um, got another couple of uh, quite interesting ones uh, stored up and ready to go for future episodes so um yeah if uh if if you could help us out there folks we'd certainly appreciate it
1: yep it's every little bit counts and uh Yeah, so we're going to have the tip jar on the website and that'll all go into our PayPal account that we can use for picking up equipment and so on. (laughs) The joke is that if if every single person put $1 in, we'd be able to buy another one of these Behringer microphones.
0: (laughs) These wonderful Behringer microphones that we're now using.
1: Yes. Oh, there's a point. I there's need a... to
0: send an email to Berenger. They're wonderful people at Beringer.
3: <laughs>
0: and uh, seeing as we do have a number of overseas listeners, um, one Aussie dollar, folks, our friends in the US, so that'll only cost you 86 cents. And uh, for anyone listening in Europe, that's only uh, 58 euros. And for our friends in New Zealand, that's only 3,500 New Zealand dollars.
1: <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> oh, I meant to do this.
1: Oh, thanks, dude. As some of you may have noticed. Uh, Steve's been uh, playing with some new toys that he's picked up. Another reason for the tip jar, he's got himself <laughs> a uh, wonderful mixer desk and a few uh, sound effects gear. Uh, so he's able to put uh, sound bites, snippets, and uh, various sound, um, effects into the uh, into the show just by pressing a button. So this is not being done post-production. It's the real thing.
0: There you go. So, yeah, of course, um, like I say, we're not uh, looking to make a fortune out of this, but if you, uh, if you could help us uh, cover a few of our costs, uh, that would be really appreciated, folks.
1: That's enough on that subject, I think. Uh, On with the show. It's uh, time to wrap it all up and uh, get on with the rest of our lives. Uh, We'll have another podcast out for you pretty soon with some uh, excerpts and uh, interviews we did at the Royal Vic Dawn Patrol the other weekend. Yeah, we've got a whole lot of really great things coming up that we're working on uh, more interviews with other people some more discussions and uh, it's all starting to come together for us so we're really wrapped.
0: Yep, uh, yeah Grant got some uh, really cool uh, probably in our next week's episode until then uh, we can tell you that our sound effects each week of course come courtesy of soundsnap.com. You can find uh, our show notes at plaincrazydownunder.com we've got uh, links uh, to all the articles that we uh, source our news from each week for you. You can visit our fan page on Facebook and you can also. So find us on Twitter, Grant. What's our handle there on Twitter? On Twitter, we're PCDU. Pretty easy, isn't it? Mm, pretty easy. So uh, where else can you look at it as Well, of course, uh, my blog is uh, ozflyer.com. I haven't updated that in a while. And uh, Grant's got his own blog as well. Yeah, my blog
1: is uh, blog.flymefriendly.com. And yeah, I too have slightly blog faded a little, uh, mostly because I'm so flat out working on, uh, on this podcast as well as a little bit of time to uh, <coughs> pay the bills via a day job. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh. Yeah. Very true, mate. So, uh, yeah, another thrilling interview. Thanks again to Matt Hall. Thanks again for listening, folks. We'd invite your feedback. Please send us some uh, playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. Until next time we meet, I'm Steve Fisher. And I'm Grant McCarran.
1: And remember, folks, it's what's down under that counts.